0: Hi, and welcome to the Tales from the Trail podcast by Matchplay. In this episode, I welcome the Chief Marketing Officer of Student Athlete NIL, Chris Brown. NIL, or name, image, and likeness, has come to prominence in the collegiate athletics landscape over the last few years, and if you will become or are a student athlete, it's in your best interest to understand what it is and how it can potentially benefit you and your collegiate experience. Chris does a great job walking through what it is, how it works, and where it's going. Additionally, he shares his experience as the parent of a women's soccer player in the ACC. Lots of great information in this one, and we didn't even get to everything. More to come from Chris in the future. If you're enjoying the podcast and find it valuable, please consider visiting buymeacoffee.com matchplay. These small donations collectively help offset costs and other expenses associated with production of the podcast so I can continue to offer this service for free. Please take an extra minute to rate and review the podcast where you listen. This is a huge help. Share the podcast with whomever you think would be interested and will help in their process. Check us out on social media as well. The links can be found at matchplayrecruit.com. just watched potentially your daughter's last soccer game how did did, uh uh, how'd that feel
1: you know uh it's so hard to uh to put it into words to be honest with you because it's um you know one it's uh it's sad as hell right (laughs) like you know you go through 18 years of ups and downs and travels and spending time together. And I, and I tell people all the time, like, I loved the celebrations, mm-hmm. but I also cherish the downtimes because that's mm-hmm. really when you are valued for being the dad, right? Because right. the other times you're, you're like a driver, you're, you're a, a chauffeur, you're, right. you're, you know, a, a caretaker, right. but it's the moments that they have their hardest struggle that you really are a dad, And, and so, when I look at that last night and celebration and mm-hmm. you know, looking at the stats and all those types of things, uh, I think the thing that hit me the most was, uh, am I going to still have those moments to be a dad? Right. And, uh, and so, you know, my wife kind of slapped me around. She's like, of course you are, you know, they're always going to have to come to you right. for something, money right. or whatever it may be. But, right. um, yeah, it was crazy, Scott. It's, um, it's hard. And, I joke with her all the time. I'm like, look, you got a COVID year. Like, we could take this. We could do it one more time. Right. But, uh, you know, she's, fortunately, knock on wood, you know, she had a great career, was injury free for the most part. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so And I think she's just ready to, to be yeah. done. Yeah. So
0: messages, enjoy it while it lasts because it doesn't last forever. Um,
1: That's for sure. And especially, you know, you, you know this too, when you get to college, it's, it turns from, you know, kind of this social uh, experience with girls, and you're on the road, and you're traveling, and, you know, there still is a sense of, of feeling a little bit like, hey, I, I still have my friends at school and I can still hang out with them. And it it's right. still kind of feels like a part time thing, even though the club isn't. But when you get to college, it, it without a doubt is a business. And I yes. tell people, parents all the time that are fresh that have freshman kids coming in that this is the first real employment uh uh, situation for your kid this is the first time that they have a boss and they're expected to do certain things and if they don't it literally could have a financial impact on them and so it's a whole different world and just the way that the athletic departments are set up now and the way that coaches are set up now you know, they have to win. They have to perform. And so your kids are now being expected to do things that they've never done before, and and especially sacrifice things they've never had to sacrifice before. Um, So it's, uh, I I think I say all the time to these kids, I have great admiration for what they go through, what they give up, and how much courage and perseverance that they have to have. It's it's a hell of a lot more than I could ever have for them to withstand that a grueling four years of of any sport. But for you know, for my kid, especially soccer, and, and being at the University of Miami, where, you know, she's practicing on Saturday mornings and right over the fence, literally over the fence, all of Fraternity Row is doing their tailgate parties for the football games. And my daughter's sitting there looking, going, What am I doing? Like, this is not the college experience.
0: Right. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, Go back a little bit and talk about, you know, her recruiting story and, you know, how did she end up there? Um, And, you know, what you experienced going through that.
1: Yeah, for sure, Scott. You know, hers was a little bit different because she was not the superstar on her club team. Um, She, you know, here in Atlanta, we have a, a pretty good club market. Uh, she was on a very talented team. She had, um, and at that time, uh, the rules hadn't changed in terms of recruiting time. So she, the kids were committing their freshman and sophomore years in high school. And I would say that it was probably half of her club team had committed by their sophomore year. And Delaney, who was starting every game and playing every game, playing the whole game, was a key defensive player, um, just wasn't getting recruited. Uh, to the level that she wanted to, so it made us work extra hard. And you know, you know, as, as raising kids, to get to get a fourteen-year-old to think about, oh my gosh, I've got to spend all this time talking to adults, reaching out to adults, trying to get in their you know purview as a potential student athlete on their team. That was something that was really challenging for Delaney to wrap her arms around. Plus. She was also, I think, suffering a little bit. Like, what's wrong with me? I'm not being recruited as much. Right. So we we took the path of getting together and formulating a plan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when she was a freshman, I asked her. I said, "If you could spend four years at any school, what? Give me five schools that you could do that." Mm-hmm. You know, she could name two schools. As a 14 year old, she's like, "Well, Dad, you went to Virginia Tech, so I, and Mom and Dad, I, I know that, and I know University of Georgia because it's an hour from us." Mm-hmm. Outside of that, she couldn't name five schools. So I took the took a, a, up um, an idea and I just said, all right, I'm going to create a, a sheet and ask her a mm-hmm. bunch of questions about geography. Like if you had to live someplace for four years, would it be near a beach in the mountains? Would it be near a big city? And do you want cold or hot or four seasons? And do you want lots of restaurants and lots of night spots? Or what is it? So I put this whole sheet together and I had her fill it out and so she got to the end and, and there clearly was a place that she wanted to be for four years. And then I'll get back to that that in a second. But from that point, um, we, we worked closely with our club coaches to identify schools that, uh, that made sense for her, or at least programs. And I, I kind of took a little bit of a contrarian point of view. I'm not a soccer player growing up. I'm, you know I've learned just through her experience. I felt like, a smaller division one school was probably a better thing for her, maybe a mid major or five school. Mm-hmm. And um, but all the college or all the her club coaches were saying, No, she's she's a division one player. Like she's she's a power five division mm-hmm. one player. So what I did was I sat down with her and we created a target list of schools and programs and we started doing research on those to identify if she came in as a freshman, what was her trajectory to become a starter. Um, and we worked on those, and we looked at coaches that um, liked defense and liked her style of defense. And Delaney is a, you know, she'll go through anybody to get a ball. She's a, she's loud on the field in terms of a leader. So we kind of identified about twenty five programs. And then I sat down and I created email scripts. I created uh, call scripts. I created questions to ask if you got the coach on the phone. I you know. If you had a voicemail, there was a script there. And then I worked with her on capturing video. We got into a cadence after every one of her club weekends. We would send out emails that included links that we could track to her video highlights. Mm -hmm. And we went through that process. And it opened up the door to, uh, I think, probably, numbers excuse me, probably around 10 schools that said, okay, you're on our list. And so... We started to identify those opportunities and we got invited to ID camps, but, um, and we went to one. And I'm not going to tell you which school it was, but it's in the Southeastern Conference. And I walked out of there and I said, I applauded the coaches for, you know, bringing, you know, promoting an ID camp. But what I realized was it was less an ID and it was more of just a camp. And so I said, we're not going to do those anymore. You know, we're, we're going to go to programs that really want you and are interested in you. So we did a bunch of, of unofficial visits, and um, it was interesting. The school that she selected, University of Miami, uh, when she walked on campus, I think it was the coaching staff uh, certainly uh, she liked and, imp- and she was impressed with. They were in a rebuild program, so she liked the opportunity that she would have as part of a rebuild first recruiting class, felt like, you know, she'd be a a key contributor to the program, to the, to the culture. And then going back to that list that she developed, Scott, uh, everything that Miami had was exactly what she said. I want to live near the beach. I want to live near a big city. I want to, you know, 80 degree weather all year round. Mm -hmm. And so, um, all in all, I think the process was hard. Um, but, Had we not gone through the process of working together, coming up with scripts and targeting, really working it, um, she would not be where she has been for the last four years for sure. Um, Right. And I I spent a lot of time with young parents who are club parents, and I've created a pretty extensive binder, and I share it with them all the time, and I... They're kind of shocked. They're kind of thinking, whoa, wait a second, we're going to all these showcases. There's coaches everywhere. They're going to see my daughter. And the reality is when coaches go into these showcases, they know who they're going to see or they're going to look at a specific position they're trying to fill. And so for somebody just to pop on the radar, it happens, but it's not not an everyday thing. You have to work. You have to work.
0: Yeah, I mean, you guys attacked that with intention and like it's a classic case of you get out of it what you put in, right? I mean, you put a lot of time and thought into you know, the approach and you know, you you differentiated yourselves. You know, Delaney was differentiated from the rest of the crowd because she knew exactly what she wanted and yeah. That's yeah. That's Yeah, it's
1: important. Right. Like, yeah, I I remember I kind of remember it's been a long time ago when I was 14. I I didn't remember. I didn't know anything. And, you know, these kids don't either. And they lean on us. I think oftentimes we as parents uh, are somewhat delusional about the um, maybe the skill level or maybe the maturity level of our kids. Yeah, we we call it delusional parent syndrome. And (laughs) wait a second, you're. Your kid has their shoes on the wrong feet. And you think mm-hmm. the next Tessie, it ain't right, it. right. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I think sometimes we ourselves have to take a, uh, a different approach. And mm-hmm. um, we have to understand our kids have very little context in terms of what we have. And so we have to we have to guide them through this process if we want to get them to the place they want to get to. Right. You know, I, I, as I mentioned, I spent a lot of time with our incoming parent of uh, the parents of our incoming freshmen at the University of Miami each mm-hmm. year I do a webinar for them at the beginning of the year and the one thing I tell them is that when you come into this environment you got to realize that your kid who was number one on their club team is now amongst 27 other number one players on their yeah. club team yeah. and you also have sophomores and juniors and seniors that are playing at a whole different level and So when you come in as parents, you really got to prepare your kids to expect nothing, expect no playing time, expect that maybe you get a minute one game and the next game, you're not going to get anything. Mm -hmm. And I think where problems arise, especially for freshman parents and and especially their kids, is their kids are trying to please their parents. They're trying to please the coaches. The parents... You know, are putting pressure on them for no other reason than, hey, we're going to come see you play this weekend. And they're like, right. I'm not playing. And so that puts pressure on the kid. And then it's yeah. trying to get feedback from the coach. But, you know, when you start your season on August 1st, your first game is the ninth, the coach has very little time other than game plan and get ready for the, you know, first game and the next game. And so, you know, with Delaney, I, we went through an extensive amount of training the summer before her freshman year and it was a COVID year, so it was a little brutal. But the one thing I told her all the time is I said, Look, for the first ten games, you know, you're not gonna see the field. You just know that right now, so you've got to just work your tail off and practice. The next ten games or next five games, try to get fifteen minutes a game. And if you get fifteen minutes a game, celebrate the heck out of that.
0: Mm-hmm. And then
1: after that, let's see where it goes. She was fortunate because she went in and, you know, because of injuries and some other things, she came in as a starter. She played 90 minutes. And at the end of that first game, I remember her calling me and going, Dad, now what? Like, should I not think that I'm going to play the next game? And I, yeah. I was kind like, I think you may play the next game. Right. Like, you might be okay.
0: <laughs> so, Yeah, I mean, she kind of blew your theory there. But that was kind of definitely the exception to the rule. I, I, would, I would agree with you. Um, yeah for sure yeah so you know maybe talk about the the experience you know going on or ongoing and and through the next few years and you know how she grew as an athlete and as a person and you know what your observations were yeah um and yeah from just go for for sure
1: yeah Yeah. you know drop off your 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 little kid and, and in our case you know Put her on a plane and fly her down to me, and you're like, "Oh my God, what did I just do?" <laughs> you know, we've all been to Miami, and we know that what Miami's all about. I'm thinking, "Oh boy," um, you know. I think uh, her coach, and I think uh, the program, and I think soccer, uh, pretty consistently, because mm-hmm. despite the challenges of soccer, it has given her an amazing opportunity to be at a great school to meet great people and be in a program that's that's pretty rigorous. Um, and uh, and it keeps them disciplined and keeps them grounded. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Delaney's my middle child. She's somewhat of a typical middle child, but at the same time, she's also been a kid that always hid behind my leg. Mm-hmm. And she was shy. And, and so coming into the program, she came in and she was a yes, ma'am, uh, yes, sir, type of kid. Whatever you need me to do, I'm doing. She always showed up on time. Mm-hmm. You know, she was always the last to leave. She did everything that I never expected her to do. A good um, center back. That's a good yeah.
0: mindset of a center back,
1: yeah. There you go, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, so that, that I thought was really interesting um, because, you know, you get worried that if you throw a kid out on their own, they're not going to survive. The reality is they will survive. They may not do it the way that we think they should do it, but they will survive. And she did. The other thing that she did really, really well throughout this was that she was open to learning. And so she was open to learning from her coaches, from her teammates, and kind of adapting and and building kind of her own uh, style. So from an academic standpoint, you know, she did well until the rigor became so much academically that it started to challenge the balance between playing soccer and then break. And so she had to change her major midway through. And it was just because the rigor, it, it, you couldn't do both. And so that was a little bit traumatic for her. She, she was struggling with, Hey, this is my future versus I have this commitment. And at the end of the day, I said, look, you—you you, this isn't going to distract you from your future, but you did make a commitment. So you have to honor that. So now at the end of the day, Here's how I'll sum everything up. Her last game, I had players coming up to me and telling me uh, how much they appreciate and admire her leadership and her caring and her being there for, for them. And that individual stories came to me. And as a dad, is it well, as is a, is a fan, I was like, man, that's a great leader. That's the type of player that I want on. And as a dad and as a parent, I was like, wow. You know what? This is what it was all about because those types of things she learned along the way. And um, and so that's uh, it's cool that I I joke with people because I I say that soccer gave my kid the gift of courage, the gift of discipline, the gift of determination. What I've realized is soccer didn't give that to right. They they have that inside of them. What it's done is it's given the opportunity for them to utilize those. And then gain confidence and belief in it. And uh, because of that, you know, as a non-soccer player, I have such a love for the game. Um, in every game, it's every sport. As long as kids embrace the ride, right? And parents do too. Yeah, I mean, that's really
0: the best possible outcome: is to get that feedback about your child. Oh. Um, yeah, I mean, I had a similar experience, so it's uh, it, it 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 makes you feel good. You know it, for them, it, you it know, does, and proud, so um, yeah,
1: yeah it, that, especially uh, Scott. Because, like, I see her in other lights too, and I'm like, that's not my kid, like, <laughs> she's she yeah. can be a total pain in the butt, and I'm like, right. that's not my kid. Or when right. she calls home and she wants money, and I'm like, wait a second, what are you talking about? You need money, we just gave you money. You know? <laughs> right. Well, I guess yeah. in, in Miami, drinks do cost 18 bucks a piece.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine going to school there. I, would, I wouldn't I would survive. Um, <laughs> Me it. You and I have known each other a long time. We both know that it would have been a problem. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I mean, this is kind of bonus content. Um, the reason why we wanted to, to connect was to talk about what the project you're working on now um, and as it relates to college sports. Um, and so... Tell me the name of the company and, you know, well, actually, so what we're going to talk about is NIL. So yep. I, I want to, I want like a good definition from you. You work in the space and that, you know, just help me am you know, IE the audience uh, understand what NIL is and how it came to be. And, you know, like a quick primer on, you know, that world, so to speak.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. So. You know, I think I think it's uh it's interesting um, how I got into it. Yeah, I've been in sports and entertainment my entire career, Um, but I would probably have not have ventured into NIL had it not been for my kid. You know, being in the mix, being in college sports, being at a very expensive school, and. Looking at other opportunities to bridge the gap between scholarship money and cost of attendance, right? Mm-hmm. And so NIL was a logical place to go. And, um, but I also saw a problem. I saw a problem in NIL in that the majority of NIL dollars was going toward um, football and some basketball. Um, and the majority of non, almost all non revenue sports. Were not None of the athletes were able to get NIL dollars. Uh, they didn't understand it. They didn't understand what they could do or couldn't do. Um, and so uh, that made me really interested in it. and made me passionate about Is Hey, how can I make every college soccer player at the University of Miami, in some way, shape, or form, understand NIL and be able to participate in it, either by getting paid to do something or to be able to create an opportunity for them to do something they normally wouldn't be able to do, Um, whether it be get a job or, you know, meet somebody that's influential, whatever, whatever it may be. So, you know, so that kind of dove me into the world of NIL and then I became a partner in a, in a company called student athlete NIL, which is the largest owner and operator of collectives in, in the U S and we're the largest employer of student athletes in the U S and I can talk a little bit about that in a second, but. So NIL, NIL came about in July 1st in 2021. The Supreme Court uh, unanimously passed a, a law that allows um, college athletes to effectively make money on their name, image, and likeness. And so, um, you know, that came about, that gives the opportunity for every student athlete to go out, market themselves, earn money. Um, and, and effectively um, create their own brand and own pathway uh, utilizing mm-hmm. their name, image, and likeness. Now, that, that's kind of the definition, and it's, it's somewhat independent of everything else. But when NIL was launched, all of a sudden you had the transfer portal in college sports, right? So now you have college sports, you have athletes that go, well, wait a second, you know, this team that I'm playing with right now i can't really build my name image and likeness but this team over here is saying hey you come over here you know we can help you to do that and we we know people that will pay for the use of your name image and likeness so all of a sudden all these athletes started jumping into the transfer portal going other places and in many cases making money in some cases not at all but um And then with that, you also had conference realignment going on and all these types of things. And so
0: nil And and COVID. And COVID. Yeah. Which drove a lot of it. Yeah.
1: So it's like the perfect storm. It's a perfect storm. And and in many respects, NIL has gotten out of control. And and it's gotten out of control because it explicitly says that athletes are not supposed to be paid for performance. In other words, hey you come out and you make a great catch. A donor cannot just give a kid money for for a great catch. What they can do is they can say, hey, Jimmy, you you had a great game this weekend. We want you to come out to our business and we want you to do a meet and greet and we're going to pay you and we're going to promote that. We're going to pay you for that meet and greet. And, you know, there's implied rates on what uh, a student athlete should be paid for that. Um, In some cases, it's, you know, a star quarterback who's going to be a top ten draft pick, his rates might be significantly higher than, say, right. my kid who, you know, is a is a soccer player. Mm-hmm. But you know, when when NIL happened, the ni or the NCAA uh, kind of disappeared, and and that was problematic because they were not well prepared to handle and work with the with the institutions to be able to put process in place to manage. Um, the amount of money that was going to be flowing through the colleges, or sorry, really the, what's called the collective, to the student <laughs> athletes. Right. And because of that, it's created um, a really slippery slope where, you know, you've got um, individual states creating <laughs> NIL laws, you've got institutions creating their own rules around NIL, and you've now got the federal government looking at Hey, okay, what laws can we put in place to try to clean this up? And I, I'm, I'm never, I, I'm a, I'm not, I don't want to share my politi- political views, but I, mm-hmm. I never want <laughs> government involved in, in private business. Mm-hmm. But in this case, I think that might be the only solution. And, right. you know, the NCAA needs some help right now, some backing to, to make mm-hmm. sure that there's a standard set of rules that everybody's got to live up to. And, right. um, and so, you know, nil for uh, sports, I think, is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think rules around nil is a great thing, and that's where we need we need to get to. Right. Um, so, when you say collectives, yeah,
0: define collectives and how those work.
1: Yeah. So, so collective is really it's it was kind of a made up enterprise and made up name. Mm-hmm. What 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 when this all happened, the first thing that That really took place was donors got together and they said they pulled their money and they said we're going to get this into the football players and we're going to make it known for every recruit that if you come here you're going to make money here and we're going to we're going to pay you maximum that we can well what they needed was an entity between the donors and the players that would be able to manage money coming in manage activation meaning that that money coming in just couldn't go to Jimmy because he made a great catch. It had to go to Jimmy because he did five social posts and he did four personal appearances and in those types of things. So the collective really is the hub of, um, of management of the NIL process. Now mm-hmm. it's not affiliated with a school because a, a school by mandate is not allowed to necessarily pay a student athlete, uh, by, for NIL, some states mm-hmm. the laws are a little bit different, but um, so they don't have an official relationship with the school. But the collective really works in partnership with the donors, with commercial enterprises, and with the student athletes. In doing so, where there's a transparent lens by the athletic department and mm-hmm. by other interested parties to ensure that that everything is in compliance. Okay. And- there's a checks and balances. And so we, we started our company um, actually right before uh, the Supreme Court voted in July. And we were one of the first companies to come out and actually set up a collective. And we set up a professional infrastructure. And the founder of the company is a guy named Jason Belzer, who Jason has a lot of different interests in college supporting companies, those in media and management. He is uh, mm-hmm. a lawyer, he uh, played football at Rutgers, and he's also probably one of the uh, wisest um, industry experts in terms of where NIL is going and, and where legislation will eventually take us. And so he started the company, he built the company, and what we've done is come in and, and really are a part of the growth of the company. So mm-hmm. our largest collective that we own and operate is with the University of Oklahoma. It's Crimson and Cream. Um, but we also have collectives at Syracuse and Georgia Tech and Wake Forest and Rutgers and mm-hmm. uh, Vanderbilt. And we also work with group of five schools, mid-majors, and even some FCS schools who have, you know, one sport that is probably their dominant sport, but they have a large, significant donor that wants to support it. But ultimately, Scott, the, the, the thing is is the... College athletic departments rely heavily on three sources of income. One is their broadcast partnership. The second is what's called their media marketing rights, which they uh, sell off or partner with a with a company like a like a PlayFly or a Learfield. And mm-hmm. the third is um, it, the third is tickets and and uh, and ticketing. But they also have this other pool, which is donors. And so these mm-hmm. are high net worth individuals that. Help with capital campaigns around development of facilities, supporting sports, those types of things. Well, those same donors are being asked to support the NIL initiative, and therein lies this kind of tension between, you know, athletic departments and the collectives. Like the athletic director, I got to build better facilities to attract student athletes, and right. then you got coaches saying, "Hey, we need student athletes to be able to get, to earn NIL dollars because I got to get better athletes." And so there's this kind of yin and yang, and it, it's really not even yin and yang. It's, it's, it's kind of this bipolar approach that, that right. isn't working. Where it is working is when athletic directors understand the value of NIL. They understand the value of a collective, meaning that this is an opportunity for, um, a first opportunity for them to be able to connect with fans like they've never connected before. Meaning, when they deal with broadcasters and their media, and marketing rights, and ticketing partners, those are all partners that have the relationship with the fans. The athletic department doesn't. But what right. we know is, is that in some of our schools, where the athletic department, the athletic director, and department really buys into the whole collective model, they're seeing it as an extension of their department in such a way that they can develop a first-person relationship with the fans and start to create programming, sports. Content that then satisfies the needs of the fans and gives them an experience like they've never had before,
0: right? So then it kind of changes the competitive landscape, right? I mean, it's you know, it's who can raise more dollars, right? I mean,
1: fortunately,
0: that's yeah, uh, right. yeah, that's it, yeah,
1: you know, where the NCAA was formed over 120 years ago by Teddy Roosevelt, right? And he, in, he, in its he, he was president at the time, and so he formed a government organization mm-hmm. called amateurism. And if you look at NCAA and college sports for the last 120 years, it's probably been as highly regulated as the banking industry or the en- energy industry in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, so much so that every NCAA school has a compliance officer in their school, making sure that you know, the people aren't deviating from the guardrails. NIL came in, and it blew out the guardrails. And it it so much so that the NCAA almost disappeared, right? They just went in and, and said, well, I guess things are going to happen. And the athletic yeah. directors largely weren't prepared. Um, coaches saw it as an opportunity for better recruiting as long as you had strong donors to come in. Mm-hmm. The game's changing now. The regulation is starting to, to come in. There's all sorts of theories about to Every student athlete now become a, an employee of the school, which, you know, I, I can't see that happening for a number of different reasons, but uh, the least of which is how do you pay a start quarterback a million and you only play, pay a soccer player 100,000? Like, it, it, Title nine issues creep in, so I think that's going to be a, a hard one. I do think that we're going to see some pretty significant changes around college football, um, and I think that's inevitable. Um mm-hmm. But, you know, to even things out, there needs to be an agreement amongst all institutions at levels that say, OK, we can do NIL. We can't. I mean, that that is going to happen because that's a law. But from a performance standpoint and playing on an even playing field, we need to come up with salary cap or we need to come up with something that's going to create parity. Otherwise, you know, look, look at the top 20 um top 25 college football poll this week. I think 15 of those schools are in the big 12 sec or the teams that are going to be in those conferences next year. Right. So you're starting to see this, this unequal distribution, which is not what college football fans or or sports fans want.
0: Right. Exactly. Um, so what about school sports that aren't football and basketball? Um, the sports that our kids play, um, you know, how, how do they benefit from NIL? Where is, what's the trend um, with NIL for non-revenue sports?
1: Yeah, Scott. So that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's, it's a great question. And it's a, it's a significant challenge right now. Um, you know, the, the, I think the mindset of donors, the mindset of the athletic department, the mindset of the school is the more, the greater success of our football program, the greater success of our entire sports program, the more Mm -hmm. revenue that comes in, the more that we can do in terms of facilities and, and supporting the other college sports. The reality is athletic directors right now are, are are a little bit concerned that Mm -hmm. if, if football, for instance, is spun out and into its own kind of semi pro thing, how are they going to generate revenue to support non-revenue sports? So I think a lot of that is still trying to be figured out and assessed Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of non-revenue student student athletes that are not on uh, revenue generating sports. It boils down to this. There are very few resources for them in terms of NIL. You have have an educational component, which is pretty strong. And there's a number of companies that out there that work with, Uh, athletic departments on educating student athletes on NIL, what it is, how they can benefit from it, what they need to do. You have a number of companies that have marketplaces, and this is where a student athlete can enroll in the marketplace. They can look at deals, which are mostly brands looking for specific student athletes to promote their product or services. And then, you know, the last part of it is, You have some student athletes that just say, hey, I like the challenge. I believe in myself. I want to go out there and market the heck out of myself by doing kind of what I described in my daughter's uh, recruiting process. And that is picking up the phone and smiling and dialing and hoping that a brand said, hey, I'm willing to give you $500 to to market my restaurant around the corner. And, uh, you know, here's $500. Do two social posts and bring your friends in. That sort of stuff happens. But largely, um, there isn't a ton of NIL opportunities for kids outside of football, basketball, baseball, um, and it's it's really up to those kids. Now, you yeah. have some some schools, such as um, you know University of Oklahoma, for instance, they have a three-time national championship softball team, Right. right. So you have some donors there that. Um, are very supportive of the program. And so they step up and they pull their money together. Now it's not the same as the football program. They pull enough there to have a meaningful impact. Then that coach can go out and market to you know recruits that, hey, we have a strong donor base and we've built a very strong collective that is finding commercial opportunities for our players. And mm-hmm. our players can make several thousand dollars up to you know probably ten thousand dollars a year. Being able to uh, to take advantage of NIL, but that's few and far between. And you, you got to remember, there's there's over five hundred thousand student athletes in this country, five hundred thousand competing at the college level. Of that, there are probably less than twenty five that are making seven figures a year. Okay, so less than twenty five. These are these are the star quarterbacks, the you know star. LeBron James's kid, you know, Deion mm-hmm. Sanders' kid. And, and there's more to just them playing, you know, at, at the college level. It mm-hmm. has to do with a lot of other factors. Um, but then you have maybe, maybe a couple hundred kids that are making six figures a year, right, in NIL. Mm-hmm. And then everybody else is not making anything to speak right. of. And so yeah. it's a big misconception of how many kids or how many kids are making money and how much money is actually really out there. It boils right. down to, I think there is money available. You have brands that don't really know how to engage with student athletes, but it really boils down to how aggressive does a student athlete want to be in, in terms of getting NIL dollars. I, got I can you. tell you my, my kid, um, She's got a number of NIL deals, some that she generated on her own, some through a marketplace, some that she just reached out because, you know, I said, look, anything you drop in the Amazon cart for me or her mom to buy, you have to reach out to that company first and see if they'll do an NIL deal with you. And in some (laughs) cases they send her free product and, you know, she markets them. And in other cases we end up paying for them. I guess that's our NIL deal, but, um, Right. But I think for the most part, you know, it's, it's hard. I do get asked that quite a bit about uh, soccer in particular, especially girls soccer. And I can tell you that it, it is hard. You know, they're, they're, even the top schools, girls soccer schools in the country, you know, the Florida States, Penn States, North Carolinas of the world, Stanford's of the world, you know, if, if there are kids on their team that are getting deals, they're very, very small and they're typically generated by themselves or they're generated through a local business but the right. majority of them are very very small um, and it's you know the the industry is only two and a half years old yeah. the, the sophistication of the networks the trust of brands on relying on an 18 year old kid to go out and market their brand it hasn't been developed yet it's not as mature um, and so you know, it's, it's, uh, I think for most people coming in thinking that, Hey, I have a star soccer player. I have a star basketball center, you know, for them to think that my kid is going to make a ton of money on NIL is, it's just not realistic. Right. Do, you, a do you see it
0: trending to where it will be, um, a little more lucrative or do you think it's going to stay where it is in the next five years or so?
1: Yeah, I, I. I think Scott is going to hard to predict. Yeah, it it is, but I think it's going to stay this way over the next five years. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's largely because um, you know there's so many moving parts. The the real key is what's going to happen to college football, Um, because if college football does actually spin out and really becomes its own kind of semi-pro, then you have Mm -hmm. athletic departments that are going to have to restructure how student athletes are really taken care of and. They, there is a movement toward the NCAA allowing uh, athletic departments to market student athletes for compensation, which will, I think be good, um, you know, cause that's, that's what they hire us for um,
0: mm-hmm. or
1: we work not hire, but we work with athletic departments to do that. But I mm-hmm. think that will be good for student athletes and it'll start to create it because, because re, remember, you know, when, when, at a university, I'll use I'll use uh, Virginia Tech, our alma mater, as an example. They have a, a, a partnership with Learfield, which Learfield is a media marketing rights uh, holder. So they take the media marketing rights and they go out and they sell stadium signage and they're selling uh, broadcast advertisements and program advertisements and all these types of things. And so the athletic department, you know, is is not really involved in that. They have the assets now of the student-athletes, which Learfield doesn't have. So I think at some point that gap's got to close where Learfield you know, it has the ability to market the athletes. The school does as well. And if they do that and they pay attention to Title IX, then every student-athlete should be able to, in some way, shape, or form, not only earn what their value is, but also be able to share in the greater pool and so that everybody is, is starting to earn. Um, How oh, are they getting around? Go ahead. I'm sorry. You start to see a little bit with um, with um, Alston money as well. So, you know, some states allow um, kids to benefit if they hit certain academic standards. Oh, uh, the schools allowed to give them more money uh, that goes toward their basically their education. You know, they can spend it on computers, those types of things. So, right. you know, that that I think uh, definitely has helped.
0: Okay. So how are they, so does that mean that like Ivy league schools are going to start doing really well? Like they're going to start having to pay all their kids a lot of money. Um,
1: uh, isn't that interesting, right? Like They, they yeah. make all their money after they graduate, but yeah. Uh, yeah so, you know, that's an interesting one. I, I don't know what the answer is there because that, yeah. that's clearly an Ivy decision. Yeah. Um, I, you know, and if you look at, again, my purview is women's soccer right now. Yeah. Yeah. They have four teams that potentially could make the NCAA's this year, which is unprecedented for Ivy. Um, wow. But you know they, they're they're building talent and they're figuring it out. But I, I do I do believe at some point that Ivy's got to look at hey how do we how do we create opportunities to recruit great students or straight athletes who are also great students?
0: Yeah. Um, I wanted to go back and talk real quick about um, uh, Title IX. How are they avoiding Title IX right now if pretty much all they're paying are football players? You know, so, are they, is yeah, that not
1: a regulation at this point? So it, it is. It's a strong consideration, mm-hmm. and it's probably the largest hindrance for them making every student athlete an employee of the institution. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also uh, one of the reasons that there is no official designation between the colleges and universities in a collective or the donors efforts to, you know, flow money to student athletes. They're keeping a hands off uh, from uh, the athletic departments are staying hands off from NIL. So what's happening now is because of the collectives, you know, the money comes in. These are individual brand deals with the athletes. So it has nothing to do with Title IX. It has nothing to do with the university. It's between the brand, the collective and the student athlete. Um, and so that's one way around it. Now I say that there are probably eighty plus lawsuits or investigations going on right now across the country. Um, yeah. Some that are a little more public, some that are you know just beginning, but they're all kind of going after the NCAA's uh, kind of role, uh, the collective's role, the university's role in the kind of this transfer of money. Um, I think a lot's going to happen in the next couple of years as it relates to NIL. But all that being said, like as it relates to college, NIL is still a very individual thing for a student athlete. And, you know, we know that uh, we, we own a, and operate a thing called the NIL Summit that we do here in Atlanta at the College Football Hall of Fame every June. We have about 600 student athletes come in. We have a bunch of administrators come in and a, a lot of media and brands. And so there's about a thousand people that gather. And, and the whole thing is to talk about NIL and it's for for each of the constituents, there's a kind of a, a curriculum path. What we're realizing is the student athletes, there are a certain group of student athletes that are truly believing that NIL is their pathway to a greater future. And it's mm-hmm. beyond the field. Um, It's really about, hey, I'm learning how to build my brand. I'm learning how to grow my brand. I'm learning how to connect with, you know, partners and corporations and high-net-worth individuals who are going to help me to build my my path forward. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, throw away all the kind of the stuff that's going to go on, all the decisions that are going to be made outside of the, the hands of the athletic department and out of the hands of the athlete. The greatest thing that NIL is providing is a pathway for these kids to truly understand the value of themselves and really mm-hmm. set a pathway for them to uh to grow
0: right very cool um i know you got a role so um <laughs> <laughs> we uh maybe we'll just kind of put a pin in it and uh, come back to it um there's yeah. plenty more to talk talk about here so um for
1: sure is, right like you you have a lot of traditional um purist of sports. Uh, We really valued the idea that college athletes were not getting paid. Um, So just as we start to address that and people start getting used to it and understanding NIL's role in college sports, then it starts to happen at the high school level. And again, you know, just the separation between NIL is really an individual law that allows you as an individual to monetize um, your name, image and likeness. And then all the kind of federations that regulate sport have had to fall in line to allow a student athlete, regardless of age, regardless of school level, to be able to monetize their name, image, and likeness. So then what ends up happening is you got high school athletes and you got high school athletes who are now saying, look, I've got you know, 500,000 Instagram followers and I've got a million followers on TikTok. I should be able to do the same. So what's happened is states have regulated and put laws in place that allow uh, high school athletes to also take advantage of NIL. And that's happened in about, I think, last, it's probably 20 to 21 states, somewhere around there. Georgia, they just passed the law as well um, in the last couple of weeks. Virginia's passed the law. And, and now you have high school athletes that, Um, can can take advantage of it. The reality is, most high school athletes, in terms of their marketability and market value, there really isn't any. You know, these are 16, 17-year-old kids. Now, if you're a star quarterback, a star basketball player, star star baseball player, you may have a greater advantage because, while I don't have proof that this is uh, happening, but you may have collectives or you may have businesses that are owned by alumni of schools that will go to that high school athlete and do an NIL deal with them in hopes that it may positively influence them to go to a specific school. And that's the dirty side of NIL. But in reality, that's, that's probably where, where the majority of opportunities or, or maybe the majority of money at the high school level is going. The second part of that is you do have some national brands and and I can't talk about one specifically, but I do know that part of their strategy is to enter into agreements with high school athletes, not to market them, but to pay them money to help support their training costs, all that sort of stuff, get some marketing out of it, but very subtle but in hopes that if they continue their career trajectory and turn pro at some level, that they'll have a relationship with that specific brand. That I yeah. do know is going on with national brands, and it's it's not a. I think it's kind of a interesting strategy, and I think they uh, write it off as, "Hey, we're doing the right thing by not over promoting a 16 or 17 year old kid." Um, At the same time, you also have parents that are certainly taking advantage of of NIL at the high school level. And and these are, you know, this isn't happening everywhere. So I don't want to, you know, crap on parents per se. But there are parents that see that their kid is uh, successful at the high school level, has has an opportunity to play at the highest level in college. And they themselves are marketing their kids for NIL deals. Mm -hmm. It's got reality you know, it's again, the dirty side of NIL and it's really become a recruiting tool rather than a true marketing platform.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. It's interesting, like thinking of it in terms of a long-term investment that, you know, certain brands would make, um, it's a huge risk, but I guess, you know, they're not risking a whole lot of money in the grand scheme of things, but, um,
1: they they aren't. And it's, it's not a, like, IMG, which you're probably familiar with, IMG is, you know, one of the mm-hmm. greatest sports management agencies in history. And, you know, they, they would make significant investments in talent at the age of seven, eight, nine, ten years old, typically tennis players, and they would mm-hmm. discover these kids and they would take them under their wing and they would fund their life's their life or basically their travel and their housing to come and train under Nick Boloteri. And in hopes that when they got to 18 years old, that they would own their rights and they'd manage them and they'd make all their money back in career earnings. Mm -hmm. I would say that, you know, they, uh, they probably worked out for them because of representing, you know, Andre Agassi and and Pete Sampras and, uh, Mm -hmm. the Williams sisters at one point. And so I think that those types of things actually did work out for them.
0: Um, um, yeah, you gotta, you have to invest money in it, into it to find the diamond in the rough, right?
1: You do. So. There's no, there's no doubt about it. And you know, we've talked about this: is that, you know, it's you are rolling the dice because no one ever knows when an athlete is either going to peak, or lose interest, or get injured, and um, and so those those investments matter. I think you know, in terms of NIL, from the very purest level, if if people believe that a high school athlete or even a college athlete aligns they're aligned in value with a brand they embody what the brand messaging is uh if they believe in the kid and they invest money in them to market the brand on their social platforms one would argue that it's probably money well spent there's there is a Mm -hmm. lot of research out there that says that influencers, uh, have heavy engagement amongst their audience. Uh, and, and, so it's a cheap investment from marketing standpoint. When you look at athletes, their engagement level is almost twice that of a traditional influencer. So one could argue that student athletes are the greatest influencers of all time as it relates to social, social media. If that's the case, and if there's a brand that really does their research and they find a student athlete and they engage in a relationship, you know, there's probably very good benefits to, uh, you know, to entering into an NIL relationship regardless of the age.
0: So what's kind of the threshold that, and I imagine it varies by brand, but, you know, what type of followership is a brand looking for to, you know, say that, okay, this person's an influencer, you know, that, that, you know, what what determines that level?
1: So it's, so it's really funny. I don't know. And I think it largely depends on the brand. So, you know, we just had a a national uh, brand in the yogurt space came to us this past week and they are looking for very specific college athletes that have a minimum of a hundred thousand followers on Instagram and a half a million followers on, uh, on TikTok. And when we started looking at it, I mean, you, if you said we need a thousand, sorry, we, there's a bird here, so I apologize if you hear that. <laughs> uh, so if you said a thousand followers on Instagram, that net is wide, but when oh. you go to five hundred thousand, I mean that is a small amount, and then you carve it down to specific sports or specific genders, and mm-hmm. and all of a sudden it becomes minuscule. We went back to them and we asked them why, and they said. One is, is we're, we're more concerned, less concerned about engagement. We're more concerned about casting a wide net. We want a lot of people to see our, our name, understand our brand, and, and what we're doing. Then you right. have other brands that we work with that really are looking for heavy engagement. And they, they want, you know, uh, student athletes that people really tune in, they engage, they watch their videos, um, and they spend time on the marketing message. So it really depends, and, and I don't know what the right answer is. Other than from a marketing standpoint, we see greater success when um, when brands partner with student athletes with heavy engagement. They see more mm-hmm. success. They, they see more um, return on investment than when they try to cast a wide net. Um, so I think it really depends. I will tell you that there's very few brands that want to deal with a student athlete who has less than a thousand Instagram followers. And this, this herein lies kind of the biggest issue. My child who I think she has 2,500 or sorry, it's like 3,000 Instagram followers. I, I probably get in trouble She's for saying be mad at you
0: if you get it wrong.
1: That's exactly <laughs> right. So I want to make sure I'm right. Um, I, I, I haven't, I have trouble in, saying to her look you need to grow your instagram followers for fear of one how does she grow them and right. then you know, versus me as a dad saying you need to stop spending so much time on social right and mm-hmm. so so there's been a little bit of kind of discussion back and forth on her monetizing herself and I think what her perception is look if a brand doesn't want to deal with me because they believe that you know, I, I'm not pushing my social following big enough, then that's probably a brand I don't want to work with. But if a brand right. looks at me and believes that, hey, I represent what their their mission and, and message, and I can help convey that, then that's probably a brand I want to speak with. And, you know, right. one of the brands in particular, which is an athletic apparel brand, the relationship has been fantastic. She's done a really good mm-hmm. job. I value her and uh, and it's been a good relationship. So
0: how do, how are these kids um, growing their following and engaging? Like what do brands see as being valuable engagement? You know, you can just get on there and spew whatever, or you can like bring value to your following you know, how are, how are kids doing it? And then how are brands evaluating that?
1: Yeah. So Scott, I think, um, so I think that uh, one is the old trick of buying followers does not work anymore because mm-hmm. uh, you know you have systems in place now that can actually weed that out and see if you bought followers. So a year ago, two years ago, people were buying tens of thousands of followers. That that doesn't ha- it happens, but you know brands are too smart for that now. Right. So it's it's really organic, and so there are data scientists and, and people that truly understand social. It. It's a lot. If, if again, using my daughter for an example, she would probably have to spend an hour or more a day to be able to grow her following organically, and that means reaching into communities of like-minded followers, commenting on posts of those people, hoping to get their followers to then look at her post and follow her. There's a lot of of kind of science and, and methodology behind it. I think there. So I think it's partly that. I think they're also social by nature, right? These kids are connecting with others. Friends are following friends, and so the growth rate of these kids is not growing. They're not growing as fast as they used to because there's a lot more people there. But it also takes a lot more. The other side is if you're if you're a star athlete, uh, you know you're in the top five percent of your sport. um, You're getting media exposure, and people are following you, and so that's why there's no you know, arguing that the top quarterbacks or the top basketball players have huge followings because people just are. Or if you're a gregarious personality, you know, like you look at the LSU women's basketball team, their starting uh, lineup, you know, these these are all exceptional young ladies, very marketable, um, and when they won, they were in the media and people started following. So they've they've got huge followings right now. Um, So that's one. Now, in terms of engagement levels, I mean, so it's a great question. There's a bunch of different tools that brands use and certainly the influencer agencies that we work with use to measure engagement. And so it's not simply just liking or hearting a post. It's really looking at the post. If it's a video, watching the video, sharing the video, commenting on the video, those types of things, or even the image as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Those things are really showing engagement. And once you start to develop a kind of a pattern of high engagement, brands start looking and go okay their content is interesting it's not provocative mm-hmm. it's provocative but most of the time it's interesting and it's appealing to an audience and right. they, you know there's there's some college athletes that they've mastered it they just are they're creative they're smart yeah. they're funny you know and they just know how to relate but they spend a lot of time doing it
0: yeah yeah i've uh started using instagram to promote this podcast and um it's, it's so difficult to grow a following. And, you know, I'm putting clips of what I think are interesting podcasts out there and, you know, it's, uh, some days it's crickets. So, you know, maybe I'm just not that interesting. (laughs) Um, well, Uh,
1: no, 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 Scott, I've learned, uh, I've learned through our employee base and we have, we have a number of young people to work for us that are, um are socially native and, and social media natives and they understand they understand the science i have a fond mm-hmm. appreciation for our social media managers because mm-hmm. it does take work and, and i'll also say like i i'm i'm kind of i'm instagram or i'm tiktok or mm-hmm. i'm youtube and these kids don't think individually they think of it all as one so what they're seeing on youtube Typically, has is on TikTok and it's typically on Instagram. So they're capturing eyeballs on every platform except for Facebook, right? They, they're too young for Facebook, but they're kept capturing this and and they're driving people between platforms and they're building audiences that all are starting to to combine. It's it's really impressive.
0: I, I need to uh, bring one of them on to help me out. Um, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: so Yeah, you mentioned, uh, what's that? It's hard for us old people to take advice from young people. (laughs) I
0: I would gladly take it on this one. Um, Yeah. Uh, So you mentioned an influencer agency. Um, Are they connecting influencers who are athletes with NIL
1: opportunities? They are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, So one of the first things, when NIL started, one of the first things that happened were, they were platforms, one called Influencer, Open Doors, um, mm-hmm. Icon Source. These are platforms that essentially match brands with influencers based on a lot of different criteria. So schools were immediately adopting those marketplaces because it was a way to quickly get your athletes in a controlled environment, meeting with brands. And so they still had a lens on what was going on to ensure that there was compliance. And, you know, if you had a, if you were a Nike school and your star quarterback wasn't signing a deal with a competitor and promoting like, so these, these marketplaces opened up and they've done a really good job um, getting the brands in. And so what they'll do is they'll come in, they'll register, the student athletes come in and they register and then the brands search and they find, Exactly the the kind of the athletes that they want, uh, and mm-hmm. then they connect them. The challenge has been that student athletes are busy, and so yeah. between class, between sports, what little social life they have. That when a brand reaches out and says, "Hey, Scott, you know, I, I'd like to do an NIL deal with you. I'm going to pay you forty dollars a post to do ten posts for me." You know, a student athlete looks at it and goes, "Okay, that's going to be three hours of my time, 400 bucks. Is it really worth it? And so, you know, you it always hasn't material materialized. I think you've seen a number of the platforms go away and you've seen a couple that have really uh, hung in there. Influencer being one. Open Doors is the biggest by far. And um, Mm -hmm. and it does it does a good job. Um, And so. Ultimately, again, it goes back to, you know, a brand can be out there. They can open up the door. They can look for the student athlete. But if the student athlete isn't motivated and isn't going to do the work, then it it's, it's never going to work.
0: Right. Right. Um. So if you take away, you know, the top percent of the big the revenue generating sports, and we I can't remember if we talked about this last time, but we'll just reiterate it nonetheless. Um. So if you take away football, you take away basketball, you take away really the TV sports, I guess. Um, And you're just, you know, like your daughter, you know, a a soccer player, uh, my son of soccer player or, you know, a a women's lacrosse player or something like that. So they can engage with these agencies and not that the other sports can't, but um, and that's pretty that's like right now that's the best way to maximize the opportunity of NIL or are they are you finding or seeing that people who kind of strike out on their own and try to manage it themselves are are doing better than that
1: yeah um so i think it's one and the same scott i think that um hmm. the most successful outside of your top athletes your top mm-hmm. 1% that are getting in, inbound those that are really um, growing and building and creating nil deals are those that are um, approaching it as a business, being aggressive, and doing all the outreach on their own, whether it 's at a marketplace or it is directly to a brand um, mm-hmm. so there's a there 's a football player at Norfolk state uh, he might have graduated, but he was the king of nil there's you can research him and you know he was Reaching out, and he had he had hundreds of brand deals, hundreds, and everybody's like, "How is this guy doing it?" Right, Norfolk State's a small school, and you know yeah. he, he's not a household name, but he was a hustler, and he was going in. And some of these deals might have been two hundred and fifty bucks, some of them might have been five thousand, but he was going out and hustling, and when he got a deal, I mean he he overworked it and he did more for the brand than the brand ever expected. And so word got out, and he became the king of NIL. Those types of individuals, I think, are few and far between. He's he's just inherently, he's a business guy and a hustler. You know, right. Right. a lot of kids aren't like that. And so, but I think to answer your point, you know, I think it's a roadmap. With, with my daughter, we sat down and we created a media kit for her. Now, when I say a media kit, that's, it sounds like a lot. It was a one-pager back and front. Front was who she is, what she's into, her likes and interests. Because what we know is if if a kid likes or has a passion about something, they're going to market a product that's in that category a heck of a lot better than in a category that they don't like or don't have passion for. So we created a, uh, we created a profile of everything that she likes, what she's passionate about. And on the back side, we created um, an overview of like schooling, her growth path, her career stats, what she was doing, and then kind of some ideas that she would like to do for the brand that she could fill in. And then we created lists within those categories. So she was passionate about um, athletic apparel, nutrition, um, cosmetics. And I'm probably escaping one or two. I think it was nursing because so she she's, um, wants to be a nurse. And so then we went out and found, I made her research and create a list of brands. And then we sent these out. And it was interesting because we got a couple people that followed up and she got small brand deals, mostly products. Uh, and then I said, okay, Delaney, now it's time to pick up the phone and start calling these brands and following up on the communication you said. And she's looked at me like I had four heads. She's like, oh, no, 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 that's not part of the deal. Um, yeah, but, yeah. but I think in theory, that is what you have to do. And mm-hmm. I, I'll tell you, as far as you know, going to the University of Miami, living in Miami, Miami's expensive. And so I even had her reach out to the apartment community that she lives in. She lives with two other players. They live in a beautiful apartment community. The CEO was based uh, the company is actually based in in uh, Dallas. And I had her put a letter together and reach out directly to the CEO. Uh, the CEO passed it off, but they declined. But, you know, she she was learning in that process that, you know, the worst thing that anybody can say is, is no. Um, right. No. So, but I but I think at the end of the day, Scott, for outside that one percent, if you really want to maximize your name, image, and likeness, because it is yours, you have to put in the work, and you have to be creative, and you have to stand out, and, you, you know, you, is going through that process, you learn, and the other thing, too, is we own the NIL Summit, as I mentioned, and the NIL Summit is an amazing event where we recognize hundreds of student-athletes every year for their work in NIL. And Mm -hmm. it's fascinating because when they get up and they talk, when they receive an award and they get up and they talk about their vision or the effort that they put in, the vast majority of them will tell you, I worked harder on achieving NIL deals than I actually did on the field or in practice. And because oftentimes sports is natural to these kids, Mm -hmm. where Taking them out and actually making them, putting them into a business environment where they have to actually sell themselves and they have to listen to a brand's needs and they have to be creative around the solution, that was difficult for them. Um, right. But all of these kids, it's, it's fascinating just to be around them and listen to the way they're talking to one another in terms of their creativity and what they're trying right. to do to differentiate themselves to get money.
0: Right. Well, it's important because it gets them out of their comfort zone where, you know, things are kind of given to them, you know, to a certain extent as an athlete. And to have to go out and and, and represent themselves and, you know, talk about their own value is, is yeah. super important in the real world, right? Um, it is.
1: It, it, you know, yeah. and sports is all about that, right? Sports is all about pushing a kid outside his comfort zone. Because mm-hmm. once you do they they build confidence they learn how to navigate and, and it ultimately makes them better. And so, and in school, I think it's kind of the same way. It's, you know, you got to be pushed outside and it's got to be difficult. And I think this is just a natural extension of it.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, talk about your NIL summit. What is that all about?
1: Yeah. So, um, so we're entering our third year of it. And so Mm -hmm. this was brainchild of Jason Belzer, who's the the founder of Student Athlete NIL. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to have a single event every year that did three things. One, it honored student athletes for their achievements in in NIL. In other words, marketing themselves. Number two is he wanted to bring uh, all of the stakeholders together in one location. So student athletes, college administrators, media, and brands. And then third is he wanted to create an educational summit where with all these people together, you'd be able to uh, discuss, talk, collaborate, educate, especially in an industry that's changing consistently. So it Mm -hmm. takes place every June. It's over a three-day period. It's at the College Football Hall of Fame in Atlanta. We shut down the Hall of Fame. We, last year, we started off the night. Everybody arrived. It was a red carpet event um, where uh, the, the kids lined up. You have celebrities that come in and actually speak and give awards. And um, and then we have an awards dinner. And uh, uh, Flaje, who's uh, the All-American, I think she was freshman of the year at LSU basketball player, who's also a, uh, an aspiring rapper, actually performed at the after party. And uh, just an amazing event. And then it's filled with two more days of educational summits. And we have brands like Invesco, QQQ, Kia, Meta, Instagram, Influencer, um, who are all part of it as well. And they're part of the uh, education part of it. So Invesco QQQ did a, a whole symposium on financial management and what people should be doing and how they should be doing it. Um, Mm -hmm. Instagram and Meta were doing all about social marketing and how to utilize tools that help you to grow. Uh, Intuit was all about taxes, how to manage your taxes, because all these kids are experiencing tax uh, consequences. And then one of the coolest things, actually it was all cool, but one of the coolest things was Lululemon did its first ever NIL uh, sponsorship at the Summit. And it it hosted and had the largest NIL activation out of any brand in history, and we actually oh. they did a yoga event for all the student athletes in Olympic Centennial Park, uh, right, right, which is, sits in the heart of Atlanta. As the sun mm-hmm. was rising, um, you had over a hundred student athletes doing yoga out in the uh, in Centennial Olympic Park. So it's it's really amazing, and I got to tell you, from a guy who. Uh, you know, has been in the work world and, and uh, works with athletes and has been in the sports industry. I, I was really inspired by the stories, by the vision, the way these kids were talking. And I say kids, these adults, they were talking about their business and the opportunities around NIL. Um, and I, and I'll, I'll say one thing. One, one other thing was one of the student athletes who is a star football player at University of Florida probably has a chance to go pro um but he told me that the besides the money he said the money was kind of secondary uh in NIL he said the thing that he has gotten the most value is that NIL has seemed to open up a conversation with people in industries that he is really excited about and he happens to want to go the route of artificial intelligence software development those types of things he said that NIL has helped him to connect with florida alumni who are experts in those fields and are giving him opportunities to start getting involved in those businesses at an early age, and I think that at the end of the day may be the greatest benefit of NIL.
0: Yeah, it just creates a huge networking opportunity. Um, For sure, it's like it's like a, a job interview every day, really, when you're out there, you know, showing who you are. Right. That's right. I mean,
1: you know, you fantastic. think about it, it's like. Anything in sales, right? If you, if you went out and you you wanted to sell software and you went to ten different people and you sold your software, you may get ten no's. But the hope is is that you may get ten new business relationships of people that say, "Hey, I didn't I didn't need Scott's software, but man, I like Scott." And so, and I think the same thing goes with nil. It's pushing these kids into a into an area where they're a little bit uncomfortable, but they're meeting people that potentially could have impact on their careers on their life um beyond sport
0: absolutely yeah um i think this will probably help some people who are skeptical about nil i think uh you know it it really makes sense um it's it's part of their education as well if you're if you're um not just chasing dollars and you're you're really trying to develop yourself um you know, beyond college. Uh, so yeah. yeah.
1: Um, that, that is the key Scott As I, you know, I look at my own kid and, you know, she's, she just announced the other day that she's hanging up her cleats and, uh, and wrapping her career and, you know, which, uh, we talked about was emotional. I still was holding on hope that she'd exercise her COVID year, but, you know, she, she said that she's gotten everything out of the sport that she ever wanted to. And she came out healthy. Um, Right. And so as I look at that, I also look back and say, man, she's created some great relationships because of NIL Mm -hmm. and whether she uses them or not, she's really benefited from the whole experience. Um, And I hope that every kid, again, my mission with NIL and with what we do at, at Sunil or student athlete NIL is I want every student athlete, regardless of sport, regardless if they play, regardless of their role on the team. That everybody gets to experience it one way, shape or form um, and yeah. so you know if that's all it does then Nil has been a beautiful thing for these individuals
0: right um, what's been the trend in colleges? are they are they embracing Nil or, you know is it a mixed bag and you know how are they are they um, allocating assets to help kids with pursuing Aside from you know what you do with collectives, you know are the universities actually like engaging in all this
1: so um, so it's a great question um, it It really depends scott it it's It depends on the university president, it depends on the athletic director and it depends on the head of their foundation um, mm-hmm. and and the reason being is that you definitely have schools. Uh, where the athletic director and the president are not interested in pursuing NIL because there are some risks, right? It, it, as soon as a, a college gets involved in NIL in terms of how money is administered, you start to run into Title IX issues. So no school, right. no athletic department wants anything to do with that. So there's largely been this this kind of arm's length um, in, in terms of the foundation, however, the foundation has been leveraged to be able to redirect money to student-athletes who then perform uh, charitable services on behalf of the foundation. So money from donors going into the foundation as a tax-free donation, and then that money going back out to student-athletes to, um, uh, to support the student-athletes student NIL but they actually do services for them. Ultimately, uh, that's the solution is going to be where the school uh, and the, the uh, student-athletes need to work together, whether that is student-athletes becoming employees of the university and NIL being flowed through the university and they're, they're paying for these student-athletes, which has big challenges around uh, labor and, uh, and, and those types of regulations. Um the other is revenue share like revenue that comes into the athletic department and that's shared with student athletes like how how does all that work but ultimately the solution will be that the schools will have to be involved in NIL in some way shape or form. I right. think all of that being ironed out right now. Um whether yeah. it's from a legislation standpoint um you know it, there, I think you've got a lot of people that believe that it has to be administered through the schools, but then you start to get the complexity of Title IX. You get this complexity between a public school and a private school, and you get one that has huge donor base and huge donor dollars, and and so does there become salary cap? So it's a long-winded answer to say, you know, it really depends. I think most athletic directors that have five years left before they retire love not to deal with nil at all i think it it has created such a complexity for them that they'd prefer not to deal with it um but right now there's a lot of uh i think there's a lot of noise in the in the industry around schools that are not doing the right thing with nil you know it's it's there there's perception that money's coming in going and paying athletes for performance uh and you know, and I can't argue that yes, that's happening, or no, that it's not. But the reality is, if a donor comes in and and puts a million dollars one year, and then the next year the team, you know, goes three and seven, and that donor says, "Oh, I'm I'm not going to do it anymore," there, there's probably a perception that that he put money in or she put money in for performance. Um, right. So you know, those things need to be resolved. My guess is that we'll start to see some sort of more structure around school, donor base, brands, fan base, and student athletes mm-hmm. in the next two to three years.
0: Right. Um, so, all right. If you were advising a, a kid who is getting recruited, you know, a junior or senior in high school, um, how do you advise them to evaluate what the NIL situation is at a school and, you know, how how do they determine how important it is to them? Um, How do they educate themselves on it to find the best situation for themselves? Um, You know, just how do they evaluate what's there and what it can offer them and, you know, the opportunities that it could create um, on an individual level?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, you know, the first thing I always tell a kid when they're looking at colleges is, Select a college, not on sports, not on, you know, girls or boys or uh, or you know, the coaches or the program. Select a school because that's a place you'd go for four years, regardless of anything else. We all know that <laughs> kids get injured, kids fall out, out of love with the sport, so mm-hmm. make sure that you're in a place that makes you incredibly happy. Secondarily is when you go in and in, you know, outside of the coaching staff and outside of everything, if you're looking at NIL. The first question to ask is, um, when you're talking to the coaches, please tell me about the NIL program and the services that the school provides me in order to maximize my name, image, and likeness. And so the coach may say, well, the athletic department has an educational program, which most of them do now, and they educate student athletes on not only the compliance, but also to how to maximize your name, image, and likeness. Secondarily, they may have a collective or a, a group of collectives that are supporting the athletes or the athletic teams of the university. So we, we met with a, um, a athletic uh, collective yesterday at one of the top um, uh, universities in the Atlantic Coast Conference yesterday. And we we're talking to them because this specific collective only works with football. And they have one that works with men's basketball. They have one that works with women's basketball. They have one that works with baseball. And so not an ideal situation, but for a student athlete coming in, they may find that uh, there is a collective that specifically works with their team. And if they do, the question then would be is, are there funds available to – for me to leverage my name, image, and likeness? Or can you talk to me about how you bring brands in to create opportunities for me to be able to use my name, image, and likeness? Now, I say all that because I think that's the the right approach for any student athlete. The flip side is the expectation, however, needs to be managed because just like we were talking about earlier, if, if the student athlete has not built a social following, then really what are they marketing? Two, if the student athlete isn't willing to work to get the, um, a, a deal or be able to work to do what's needed of them to market, then the opportunity for them is probably not there. So it's a two-way street. Now, if you're a star-wide receiver and you're walking in, the chances are the collective is going to be involved in that, those discussions and really help to say, hey, look, we believe you're mar- marketable mm-hmm. enough That we have five brands that are willing to step in. If you come to the school, they see value in you and they want to be a part of your, you know, your, your time here and want to work with you from a marketing perspective.
0: Thank you for listening to the Tales from the Trail podcast by Matchplay. If you're enjoying the podcast and find it valuable, please consider visiting buymeatcoffee.com slash matchplay. These small donations collectively help offset costs and other expenses associated with production of the podcast so I can continue to offer this service for free. Please take an extra minute to rate and review the podcast where you listen. This is a huge help. Share the podcast with whomever you think would be interested and will help in their process. Check us out on matchplayrecruit.com for our social media links. See you on the trail.